0: Well, good morning, and welcome to Hope Community Church. I am Pastor Trevor. I'm glad you could join us this morning. Those of you joining us online, welcome as well. At this time, let's go to our Father in Heaven in prayer. Father, thank you for your mercy and grace. We ask that you forgive us for the sins that we have committed. We also ask that you would bless us wisdom and the power to repent the knowledge of eternal life that you would bless us this morning that you would edify us sanctify us equip us as we seek your word we ask that you would speak to us through your word that your spirit would convict and cut as necessary to encourage and build up as well help us not to be distracted by the cares the worries or the pleasures and delights of this world but help us to be solely focused upon your truth and that we would have ears that hear and hearts that would respond faithfully so father we ask these things by your mercy by your grace by the power of the holy spirit in the name of your son jesus christ amen i'd like to invite you to open up to hebrews chapter 3 verse 7. if you need a bible there are bibles underneath uh, the seats uh, around you If you do not own a Bible, please take one. It's a gift from us to you. If you know somebody who needs a Bible or two, please feel free to take a Bible or two and give them out. Our text this morning begins in chapter 3, verse 7, and it will end in chapter 4, verse 13. Last week, we looked at the first six verses of chapter 3, where the author laid the foundation for the warning that is before us this morning in verses one through six he spoke about how we are to consider our apostle and our high priest of our confession namely jesus christ and how jesus is greater than moses for moses was a servant in the house but jesus is the son over the house but not only is he over the house he is the builder of the house And we are his house that Jesus builds if we hold fast our confidence and boast in him. So having established by scripture and logic that Jesus is greater than Moses, the author then warns his audience. He says, therefore, don't harden your hearts as those in the days of Moses. And that is where we find ourselves this morning. So we will read the passage in its entirety. Then we'll consider the Old Testament quotation the author uses. And then we'll look at the two reasons, which are warnings in themselves, that the author uses to support his main warning, after which we'll close with the why of it all, which we find in verses 12 and 13. So let's go ahead and read Hebrews chapter 3, verse 7, and we will read through chapter 4, verse 13. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear his voice, Do not hide in your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore I was provoked with that generation and said, They always go astray in their hearts. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as as, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not hide in your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt, led by Moses, and with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still, remains, still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them, because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. So out of the gate, the author tells his audience in verses 7 through 11, Therefore, listen. And he does so by quoting God himself. That is, the Holy Spirit. Now, two things we need to understand. What is the author quoting exactly, and why does he attribute it to the Holy Spirit? See, later in verse 7 of chapter 4, he attributes the quote to David, but here in verse 7 of chapter 3, he attributes it to the Holy Spirit. Well, here in chapter 3, he wants his audience to understand who is speaking, that ultimately it is God who is speaking, and that he is speaking through David. Though he is speaking through David, it's God who is speaking, he is the author. Later, when he references David, he mentions David specifically to highlight a contrast of time. He's comparing the days of Joshua with the, with the days of David when he wrote the psalm, and we'll talk more about why he does that when we get there. So what is the author quoting? What psalm did David write? Well, it's a psalm we just sung, sung earlier, Psalm 95. Now, it's not the entire psalm itself, but it is verses 7 through 11 of Psalm 95, which ironically lines up with the very verses that are attributed to it in Hebrews. And so the author, he quotes the last half of the psalm, and in doing so, he quotes uh, closer to the Septuagint translation, that is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, instead of the Mesoretic text. When he quotes this psalm, again, he's capturing the whole of the psalm, the main point of the psalm. If you're familiar with the psalm, you should be by now. It starts out with how the people of God should be giving thanks to God, to Yahweh, that they should be thankful and joyful for how God has delivered Israel, how he has saved God's people, and how he is the creator of all things. And because of that, he's Lord of all things, therefore, we ought to listen to his voice, and we should not harden our hearts like they did in the days of Moses that is they should not be stubborn to obey his his commands this language of our hard heart or being stubborn or stiff neck is similar to the language that we find in Deuteronomy 10:16 where God says circumcise therefore the foreskin of your hearts and be no longer stubborn and then again in 2 Kings 17:14 or which we ought to be familiar with, right? We just preach through Samuel and Kings, and 2 Kings 17, if you remember, that's the chapter following the exile of the northern kingdom Israel, and the author uses uh, that chapter to explain why they ended up in exile, and he says, they were not listen, but were stubborn. They were hard-hearted. They were stiff-necked, as their fathers had been, who did not believe in Yahweh their God. So the psalmist, he calls to mind specifically the disobedience, the hardening of hearts of those in the wilderness, those in the day of rebellion, that is, the days of Moses. Think of the rebellion of Exodus 17 at Massa and Meribah, where the water came from the rock. The people grumbled against Moses, they grumbled against God. But especially also think of the hard hearts of God's people in Numbers 14 where only Joshua and Caleb stood faithful to encourage God's people to continue on. If you remember, the spies went out into the land to seek what was going on and what it was like and who their enemy was. And when they came back, 10 of the 12 spies were like, we can't do this. These people are big. They're huge. We can't overcome them. And they encouraged the people to fear. And Joshua and Caleb were like, but God's on our side. It doesn't matter how big they are. Let us go forth, but only They were the faithful ones. They were the only ones to encourage God's people to fight the Amalekites, to fight the sons of Anak. And so due to the fear of the people, due to their lack of trust, their hard hearts, God swore in his wrath that they would not enter his rest. Now, whereas we can point to key events in the days of Moses that led to this judgment, we must not miss what God says in verse 10. In verse 10, he says, He explains why he was provoked for them. They always go astray in their hearts. Meaning this wasn't like a one-time fail or even a two-time fail. This wasn't like, well, they messed up from time to time. This was the condition, the state of their hearts. They always went astray. They never believed. They were continually seeking to go their own way. And that is what a hard obstinate heart does it is what a stiff-necked people do this is why the author then gives his first reason his first warning to of of two to support his main argument he warns them in verse 12 to take care to watch out Uh, the way we like to describe in the military is to stay frosty to be on your toes to to be on the lookout the greek word here is blepo which means to see to look And so this idea of taking care is, have your wits about you. Be aware of your surroundings. Know what's going on. And what is he calling them to be on the lookout for? Evil. Specifically, unbelief. Where? In the heart. Why? Because it will lead them to fall away from the living God. But in giving this warning, he also gives the cure the prevention that is needed that will help keep them and us from falling away from the living God. Look at verse 13. He says, But exhort one another every day as long as it's called today. See, we are called to encourage one another on Sundays especially, but not just Sundays. Every day. This is not enough. We are to do it every day. If the day is called today, and what days are called today? Every day in which you live, right? Every day that you wake up, it's today. So as long as we are breathing, we're calling it today, that's the day that we're called to encourage one another, to exhort, to admonish one another. But to what are we to exhort one another to? A good game? A good day at work? What are we to exhort one another? To listen to his voice. Hence the use that the author uh, uses for the word today. Notice, he says, as long as it's called today, and where is he pulling that language from? Psalm 95. And what's the context of Psalm 95? Today, if you hear his voice, listen. But it's not a mere listening. It's an obeying of what is heard. We are called to encourage one another to what the people in the wilderness fail to encourage one another to do, to obedience, to faithfulness, and the author gives us the reason why we ought to exhort one another at the end of verse 13. He says, So that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. When you hide in your heart to his voice and refuse to listen, when you refuse to believe, you refuse to obey, a callous forms. You know what a, a callus is? I have calluses on my hands primarily from deadlifting, especially on these three, three parts right here of my hand but not this part right here. And if I were to take a needle and prick these three, I probably wouldn't feel it because I have a callus there. Here, where I don't have a callus, I'm gonna feel it because a callus is thick, rough skin. It causes the area where the callus is formed to be insensitive. It doesn't feel. It no longer has that that nerve reaction that it would have otherwise if the callus wasn't there. And the callus is formed as it's exposed to a repetitive action. A force, a friction, a, a heat to it over time, and the skin refuses to break. The skin refuses to submit itself to that opposing force, and so a callus forms. When you hide in your heart and you refuse to bend and submit to the force of God's voice to listen to Him, and then a callus starts to form on your heart. Your heart no longer becomes sensitive to the things it's supposed to be sensitive to, like sin and unrighteousness. A callous heart is unable to see the danger and the threat of sin. A callous heart believes that it is safe and secure when indeed it is not. A callous heart believes they stand before God just fine, but in reality they are closer to the devil than they are to the Almighty. A callous heart says things like, I don't have time for God's word today. Or, there's no need for me to go to church this week, I can go next week. Or, why join a life group? Why meet with them again this week? We just met last week. Or, obedience is just legalism. Or, did God really say... The author then goes on in verse 14 to encourage us to exhort one another by reminding us of what we share in. We do, this and we, pre- we do this and we want to prevent the hardening of our hearts, for we have come to share in Christ if. If what? Again, we have a conditional statement that is posed by the author as it relates to our relationship with Christ. We share in this relationship with Christ If we hold firmly to our original confidence. This is the confidence that we spoke of last week, which we found in verse 6 of chapter 3. And that confidence, of course, is our priest, our apostle, Jesus Christ. And again, as we have seen in this letter already, and we'll see several times again throughout the letter, as what is, uh, excuse me, as also as what we see throughout the whole of Scripture. We see the expected perseverance of those who believe. This is why Scripture was written. This is why we have His Word. It is why it was given to us. The Word was not given not only to make Him known, that's certainly part of it, but His Word was given to us and was written to encourage us and to make way, to make known his way. It was to give us the path, to mark out the path before us so that we would know which way to walk and how to stay on that path and how to endure what's on that path and not to stray. Without his word, we would be hopeless wanderers. We wouldn't know the path to eternal life. We must not think that the word of God was simply just to get us through the doors of a church into a body of Christ. It is that, but it's to get us to the end as well. The author then continues on to his second reason for this warning by circling back to Psalm 95, and he does so with a nice question and answer um, in the following verses. He cites Psalm 95 in verse 7, and he Begins with a question, well, who heard and who rebelled? And then he answers it. Was it not all those who left Egypt and were led by Moses? Now, remember, he just talked about how great Moses was. And so he's, again, appealing to Jesus is greater, but also consider what happened to those who were led by Moses. He goes on, with whom was God provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did God swear that they would not enter his rest? Those who were disobedient. And then in verse 19, he gives us the reasonable conclusion that we ought to understand. He says, so we see, or another way to put it, so we understand. They were unable to enter because of, because what? Unbelief. Which also means what in this context? Disobedience. Look at verse 18. Why did God swear they would not enter his rest? Because of their disobedience. It's not unbelief there. It's disobedience. So as we see over and over and over and over again in Scripture, Old Testament, New Testament, the words of Christ in red, the words of the apostle, obedience is not optional for the believer. The one who has faith obeys one does not obey to obtain faith, but out of faith comes obedience. A person cannot claim to have faith, to have trust in Christ, and then live, live contrary to that trust. To say that I believe in Jesus Christ, I trust him with my whole being, but then when it comes to sexual morality, I'm going to say, well, it feels okay. I'm, I'm being safe with it. I, I don't see the harm you're not trusting Christ when he tells you flee sexual immorality. When he says flee idolatry. when he says flee greed, when he tells you to not be a glutton, not to be lazy, but yet you choose willfully to engage in these things. We're not talking about like mere moments of weakness when you just can't handle it anymore for one reason or the other, but when you willfully engage in those sins, you're not trusting in Christ. You're not putting your faith as you claim to be. The person who does obeys and flees from those things. This understanding is what leads the author to his warning in verse 1 of chapter 4. He says, Therefore, in light of this truth, in light of what we understand of the days of Moses, while still time allows, while the promise remains to enter his rest, therefore let us be fearful. Let us fear lest we don't enter into... His rest. Now, he's not speaking of a paralyzing fear. Rather, he's speaking of a fear that spurs one to action, to caution, yes, but a caution that leads to effective action. Think of the rock climber who climbs rock faces but fearfully checks his equipment and fearfully chooses his hand and footholds. Or think of when Alex Hallner, when he free climbed the face of El Capitan in Yosemite, Taking him several hours. Every move he made was fearfully made because if he made the wrong move, he would literally fall away. Or think of the parachutist who jumps out of airplanes, but yet fearfully packs his parachutes. Likewise, we who walk in faith, we are called and we ought to walk fearfully. Paul speaks of this in 1 Corinthians ten nine and 12. He writes, we must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. Again, he's talking about the days of Moses there. If you remember in Numbers, the serpents that went through and, and bit the people, nor grumble as some of them did, again, days of Moses, and were destroyed by the destroyer. So he's talking about the same thing that the author in Hebrews is talking about. He goes on to say, now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. That's exactly what the author of Hebrews is doing. And then he, in verse 12, says, therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. The author of Hebrews, he goes on with his reasoning in verse 2 of chapter 4 by stating that good news came to us just as it did to them. But it wasn't the hearing of the message that gave benefit. Right? They heard the message. They witnessed Sinai. They witnessed the works of Yahweh. They entered into a covenant. Not only did they hear the covenant, but they agreed to enter into the covenant, but yet it didn't work for them. They still didn't enter into the rest. Well, because they didn't believe. We must not believe that we can merely hear the message of the gospel and be saved. It is not enough to come to church, warm a seat, warm the sanctuary with your body, fill the offering with your wealth. You must have faith. They heard the message, but they lacked faith. And it is by faith, or as the author puts in verse 3, by belief that we enter into our Father's rest. In verse 6, the author explicitly states the reason for God's people failing to enter into his rest. He states, those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of what? How does the author put it this time? Disobedience. Again, we see the back and forth switching of words connecting unbelief with disobedience and faith with obedience. We need to understand this is not legalism. This is faithfulness. Therefore, do not harden your hearts to, this, to his voice on this matter, lest you fall away. The author then goes on in verse 11 to tell us the cure to this warning, to tell us the prevention. He exhorts us to strive to enter into that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. But before we speak to that and before we speak to the how and why, it would be good for us to back up a bit and understand what this rest is exactly that we are called to enter into. If we back up to verse three of chapter four, we see the author quoting the end of Psalm 95, followed by the statement, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. What does the author mean? What is he doing here? Well, he's identifying the rest. The statement here is a reference to the Sabbath rest that was established by God after he created the world in six days. And the very next verse in verse four, The author explicitly cites Genesis 2.2. And the author isn't just identifying the kind of rest, but he's also making the point that from the foundation of the world, from the moment that day was established, from the beginning, this rest, this Sabbath rest, has existed and has always been available to the people who are unable to enter it. And the reason the people in the wilderness in the days of Moses did not enter it was because of their unbelief. But for us, the rest remains for us to enter. This is where the author brings David specifically into the argument by contrasting him to Joshua in verses 7 and 8. Joshua, if you remember. He was the one, right? He was a faithful spy. He attempted to encourage the people into faithfulness. So him and Caleb, they were allowed to go into the promised land with the next generation. And so Joshua led the people of God into the promised land. They they conquered the nations there. And it it is by the hand of Joshua, uh, by the power of God through Joshua, that the people of God experience earthly rest. Consider the words of Joshua 21, 44. Yahweh gave them rest on every side, just as he had sworn to their fathers. Joshua 22, verse 4. And now Yahweh your God has given rest to your brothers as he promised them. Joshua 23, 1. When Yahweh had given rest to Israel from all their surrounding enemies. So if Joshua brought them into that rest, but yet David, 500 years or so later, writes of today... Well, that is another day, that is another opportunity to hear God's voice in order to enter into his rest. But if Joshua has already led the people into the rest, then what is going on here? What's the author teaching us? Well, what we have here is an example of typology. That is Joshua and the rest of which he led the people of Israel into, they are a type. When we speak of typology, we speak of an actual person, event, place, or theme in the Old Testament, that represents or corresponds to a greater truth, a greater substance, or a reality as revealed in the New Testament. In this case, as it's revealed by the word of God, Joshua is a type of Christ, and the promised land, the earthly rest, is a type of rest found in Christ. Actual people, events, and things that, in the view of redemptive history, point us to the true and better reality of Christ and God. If the rest that Joshua had given the people was the actual true rest God's people needed, then as the author states in verse 8, there would not have been a need to speak of another day, of a certain day, another day appointed by God, which God did speak of through his servant David. Therefore, as verse 9 tells us, there remains a Sabbath rest. And whoever enters God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from Now, we need to consider verse 10 a bit more. I want us to consider what exactly is this Sabbath rest. Is this a rest from works righteousness? That is, is it a rest from striving to obtain our salvation? That's what is commonly referred to as works righteousness, I think we might tend to think that way naturally, especially when we consider Matthew 11:28, 28, when Jesus says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. That, that's certainly the point that Jesus is making in Matthew 11. And that rest certainly does exist for believers, that when we come to Christ, we do rest from our works of righteousness because he, Christ has accomplished all the work that needs to be done. He, he obtains it. We can't do anything we can't obtain it for ourselves. He has done the work. But is that the kind of rest that the author here in Hebrews is talking about? Well, let us consider the context. Let us consider the illustration that he uses, as, or let me say, let us consider how he describes God's rest. God's rest here is related to creation, right? It's a Sabbath rest and of which God has certainly rested from. But has God rested from works of righteousness? Isn't every work of God a work of righteousness? Certainly. But more importantly, consider verse 11. Consider the language the author uses in verse 11. He says, let us strive to enter that rest. And so the author there is saying, let us. In other words, he's saying, me, who the author, who is a believer, who is saved, he also is striving to enter into this rest. He himself has not obtained this rest yet. And he's including his audience of believers as well. Though they are saved, they still need to strive, they still need to persevere to the end to enter this rest. As Christian in Pilgrim's Progress, though he has passed through the narrow gate, through the wicked gates, though he is saved, danger, tribulations, they still assail him. He still is exposed to threats. He's still exposed to the enemy, and he's still at threat of not reaching his end. So he must still persevere to the end, whether that end is death or whether it's coming upon the celestial city. It's the same for us, for we who believe. We must still persevere. So what exactly is this rest, though? It is a rest from this life. It is a rest from trials. It is a rest from sufferings. It is a rest from the same thing that the people of God in the days of Moses were promised, in which Joshua gave them, a rest from their enemies, a rest that the people of God didn't really experience in whole after the days of Joshua until the days of Solomon for a time. right? His kingdom experienced rest for a moment until the end of his reign. But that's the rest that the people of God are always looking for, a rest from enemies, a rest from threats and dangers. This rest for us is the same and this rest is wholly and fully achieved only when we die and enter into his presence or when he returns and he ends this age, when he puts all of his enemies under him. And then we reign alongside of him and join him in his glory. This Sabbath rest, which finds its ultimate fulfillment in Christ, as all of history does, it is the same concept that the author of Hebrews speaks of when he speaks of our eschatological hope in varying ways. For just as the promised land represented an earthly rest for God's people, the Sabbath rest can be viewed, as the author talks about in Hebrews 11.10, as the city but he was looking forward to the city that has no foundations. Excuse me, that has foundations. He's the designer and builder as God. Or in Hebrews 11:14, it is the homeland that the people seek. In Hebrews 11:16, it is the better and heavenly country that the people of faith desire. Hebrews 12:22, it is the city of the loving God, the heavenly Jerusalem. In Hebrews 12:28, it is the kingdom that cannot be shaken. In Hebrews 13, 14, it is the city to come. Now, while the Sabbath rest that the author is talking about here is certainly a place, we must not restrict it to a place. It is more than that. It transcends that. It is all all those places, but it is also a state. It is a condition that we are granted by God in His presence, and we do experience it in part now when we experience the peace of Christ. That partial rest that we talk about in Matthew eleven twenty-eight, 28, that plays into the Sabbath rest, but it's not the fullness of the rest that the author is talking about. This rest is a true, eternal rest found only in his presence. So this brings us back to the author's exhortation in verse 11 of chapter 4. He says, let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. But why? Why do we need to strive? Why do we need to put effort and energy into this? Well, the author tells us in verse 12 and 13. Let's read it again since it's been a minute. He writes, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. We ought to strive to enter into God's rest so that no one may fall by unbelief. For this reason, for the word of God is living and active. See, the word of God is like himself, living. The author has already used the word living to describe God. You, we see it back in verse 12 of chapter 3. The word of God is not mere ink and paper. It is not mere text in verses. It is a living power. It is not bound by the binding of a man. Nor is it bound by time, as if it is only sufficient for a portion of history. It is active. It is alive. It is not dead. It is not passive. The word of God is as alive and as eternal and as powerful as God himself. The word is sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and marrow. Now, we must not think too much about what the author intends with the expression division of soul and of spirit. There have been books written on this. Many attempt to hijack this verse to contend that the author's teaching that soul and spirit exist within each of us. But that's not the argument that the, that the author is intending to uh, deal with right now. The author's intent here in Hebrews 4.12 is to focus on the power of God's word to discern the matters of a person to know the intentions of a man and of a woman. This is why he goes on to write, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. See, the word of God knows your heart. And no creature before him, which is all, all created things, all living things, no living things, all of creation is hidden from God. It doesn't matter how many clothes you put on, how deep you go into the ground, You're exposed. You are naked before him. And you are naked in a way that you can't be naked before before one another because he sees inside of you. He sees the filth that is inside of your heart, inside of your soul. His very eyes see your darkest sins, your darkest motives. He knows them. He sees them. Even the ones you don't know about. The ones that reside deep within that deep, dark crevice that you yourself have made and dug because you don't like what you have seen. Or you're afraid of what you might see. So you take the things that you yourself deny and go, oh, that could never be me. I could never be that person. You yourself, you hide it away from yourself. He sees that. He knows the very evil that you can be. He sees the Hitler in you. The Dahmer. The rapist. The whore. The whore the murderer, the hater, the liar, the glutton, the sloth. He sees the sin in your life that you just sometimes don't see or you refuse to see. Therefore, because of this, because he sees this, and his word is living and active, and when we come to his word and we read his word, his word is speaking to you in light of those sins, in light of what you truly are, a part from him so therefore as long as today is called today when you hear his voice his word as you are now if you're paying attention as you are this day and as you have on other sundays and by god's grace and will we'll hear on other sundays and just as you do when you open up his word and read it or when you hear from another brother or sister in christ of whom the word of god dwells richly within don't hide in your heart. Don't ignore it. Don't brush it off. Don't be prideful. Don't think you're better than whatever the word says. Don't think the word's not sufficient to speak to you now, today, in the 21st century. Don't think that what it says is archaic. Don't think that what it says is unreasonable. It's the word of God. Listen. Obey. Obey. Pray that any callous on your heart would be scraped away by his word. Pray that his spirit would fill you as you seek to submit yourself to his will. Pray that you would know your sin, that you would know your guilt. Pray that you would know your shame. I know that's not popular today. Oh, let's not talk about sin and shame and guilt. How are you going to know his grace? How are you going to know the beauty of the gospel if you don't understand how ugly you are and how worthless you are compared to him? Now, out of his great love, because you bear the image of God, God sent his son, right? Yes, he loves you in spite of that. But we still need to acknowledge the filth, the, the sin that we are to truly embrace and truly taste the gospel of his word. So pray that you would fill the burden of your guilt. And pray that you would give, give those things, your burden, your sin, your shame, to the one who will deal mercifully with you. That whoever knocks, they may enter. Whoever comes to him, he will give rest. So pray to Christ, who is our apostle, who is our high priest, as the word says in Romans 7, 25, wretched man that we are, who will deliver us from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And then again in Romans 8, 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But how do we get to that point where we say, wretched man that I am? If we keep ignoring the word of God, if we keep ignoring our sin, if we refuse to face the guilt in our lives before a holy God, if we think we're better than that, or if we think God doesn't care, we need to fill the weight of our sin at least for a, a moment and regularly so we can say these words and give thanks to Christ and then remember, hey, there's no condemnation in Christ Jesus and we glorify him all the more. We don't glorify God when we ignore our sin oh, Jesus doesn't want me to feel bad about myself. No, but he wants you to feel bad about your sin. He wants you to feel bad about that. He wants you to feel bad about unholiness and unrighteousness because it causes his heart to mourn and he wants your heart to mourn for what his heart mourns and we glorify him the most when we acknowledge that sin and then we go to him in spite of that sin. It highlights his grace. It magnifies it. And people see it. People go, weren't you that person, that sinner? Yes, but by... The grace of my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, he has welcomed me with open arms by his grace, by his work, by his blood. And now I'm no longer those things. Like, yes, praise God. So we need to know these things. And the word of God will make these things real. He will make it known to us because it is living and active. It knows us better than we know ourselves. So in doing this, we rejoice no longer being under guilt, no longer bearing shame, no longer identifying as a sinner because you are a saint. You don't need a pope to make you a saint. Christ makes you a saint. Faith in Christ makes you a saint. You are redeemed. You are beloved. You are a royal priesthood. So we rejoice knowing that we belong to him, knowing that we are redeemed, knowing that we are priests in the kingdom of God. And as such you you are holy as he is holy so live not as they did in the days of rebellion in the wilderness but live as your savior lived live as christ lived live in perfect obedience by the power of the spirit that he has sent to live in you so that you may live forever with him and walk in newness of life and when you stumble when you fall Go to him. Glorify him by going to him, who is our high priest. This is what we're going to be talking about next week. This is where the author goes in verses 14 and 16. Since, therefore, we have such a great high priest, go to him. See, repentance is found when we go to him. Right? We don't repent to go to Jesus. That's works righteousness. We don't get cleaned up before we go to Jesus. We go to Jesus. We enter into the throne room. We go into the holy of holies, so we can find repentance because apart from him we're not going to have repentance you're not going to have the power you're not going to have the ability you're not going to have the grace the faith the truth and where do we find grace truth and power god so we must go to him first in order to repent so we go into the throne room with our sin we go into the holy of holies with our guilt on the basis of the blood that allows us to do so and go here I'm, I'm a sinner, I'm an adulterer, I'm an idolater, I'm a glutton, I'm a liar, I'm a murderer, I hate my brothers and sisters, I don't love as I should be, I'm unfaithful to my wife, I'm unfaithful to my husband, I'm, I'm a man of anger, I, 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 I provoke my children, I can't control my temper, I'm selfish, whatever it may be, help me repent." Help me to turn from this way. We go to him for the repentance. We don't repent before. We must go to him first, and then we repent. And when we do, we find the help that we need by his grace, by his word, but also by his people. Let's not miss that. This whole argument that the author is making, this is a community issue. Just like our whole faith is not a... Your faith is not an individual faith. This is not your faith. This is God. This is truth. This is reality. This is everlasting life. It's a people's faith given by God to his people. We do this. We, we repent. We strive because of you and I. Right? We're here to encourage one another. That's why we have potluck lunches twice a month. So it cr- creates moments for us to build relationships and to encourage one another and to speak into one another's lives. It's why we do life groups. It's why you all do such a good you guys' fellowship afterwards. i got to kick you out on some Sundays. I mean, that's a blessing. That's good. I praise God for that. And the main reason is because the word of Christ dwells richly among you. So keep at it. Keep striving. And let us not forsake the gathering of the saints. Let us not forsake his grace in doing so. Let us not forsake his word, which is our guide in this life. And let us do so so that we may enter into the promised sabbath rest that is given to the people of god who in obedience and in faith walk let's pray father thank you for your mercy and grace thank you for your patience with us father you know our hearts you know the ones that are soft and you know the ones that are hard some are calloused and maybe even some here this morning are are just hearts of stone. They haven't been made into a new creation. They haven't been born again yet, Father, and I ask that your spirit would take those hearts of stone and make them soft, that you would give them a new heart, a righteous one, a clean, a pure heart, that you would cause them to be born again, that you'd cause them to be able to put faith in your son, Jesus Christ, that they would come to know the saving grace, the truth of Christ, that they would come to profess faith in him, and come to know you and the peace and joy that comes of knowing the truth of everlasting life. Father, for those of us who, who profess faith, challenge us, convict us. That if, if, if it's a false testimony, may we be aware of it. If it's a true testimony, but yet we're walking unfaithfully, may we feel the shame, the guilt of that. Call us into your presence so that we can know the grace that we need to know and, and the, the truth of our errors and that we can turn from it. Give us what we need to walk faithfully so that we can enter into this promised rest. Father, every day that you grant us we are thankful for, no matter the pain or the struggle, the trials or afflictions that day may bring. But Father, as you give each day, give us one another. Give us one another in our prayers, give us one another in deeds and words. May we love one another. May we exhort one another with phone calls, texts, emails, gatherings, in the little ways and in the big ways. May we not neglect one another, Father. May we seek to honor one another and love one another as you call us to, as we seek to honor your Son and love your Son. May we understand that how we love one another is a reflection of our love towards you. And Father, help us to be patient and gracious towards one another, and all the more so, especially with how patient and gracious you are towards us. We know it, and if anyone in here thinks otherwise, Father, may your spirits cut them and open their eyes. Father, we ask these things for your glory so that we can know it, so that your name can be proclaimed and that the world may know that we are yours. Father, we ask that you would bless the elements that are before us, the bread and the cup. We ask that you would help us confess any sins that we might have, that you would help us to reconcile ourselves with one another if if reconciliation is is needed, that we would seek that out. We ask that as we come to the table that we would be encouraged and reminded that the work of our salvation has been done, it is accomplished, we can't add, we can't take away, it is finished upon the cross. We also ask that we would be reminded that we're called to live holy lives, knowing that your Son is going to return. We will eat and drink with him in the flesh, and that in doing so, Father, we must strive so that we can persevere. But it's not striving on our own power, but it's a power from you, a work that you have started and a work that you have completed. So help us to rest in that, Father. We thank you that we have this moment before us to rejoice as a body, the work of your Son, in the, in, a, in the anticipation of his return. Father, we ask all of these things for your glory by the power of the Spirit. In the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, amen.